Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Sin is so heinous and so egregious in God's sight, you cannot look on it. And the only thing that can make up for it is a life. And it's either you or I are going to spend eternity in hell with our lives paying for our sin, or we trust that Jesus paid for it once and for all. How many are glad for Jesus? Man, oh man, the longer I'm a Christian and I dwell on these things and I dwell on him and I remember him, I can't thank him enough. Cannot thank him enough for his grace. Open your Bibles to John chapter 3. If you are new with us, we are in a long extended series of the harmony of the Gospels. That means rather than looking through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John independently and individually, we're harmonizing them. So it's a a chronological study through all four Gospels. That way we get to all four Gospels and we get this panorama of Jesus' uh, life and ministry. And we've been in this for some months now, Ben. We are slowly making our way through. And uh, uh, we are now at the close of chapter three of John's Gospel. And this is an important event. Uh, Jeff uh, did a marvelous job last week uh, detailing this passage. I'm going to do a tiny bit of overlap, but uh, I want to get to the last, uh, last several verses. And I want to talk to you and remind you about this one great reality uh, that Jesus is supreme. He is our supreme everything. The whole point of going through the Gospels is to keep us mindful of Jesus and to keep our eye on him. Uh, The writer to the Hebrews tells us, reminds us, uh, keep your eye fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And as you study the Gospels and you walk with Jesus, you listen to him, you find that your faith begins to be strengthened. Your faith begins to grow because you're focusing on the author and the finisher of your faith. So if you are of weak faith, your limited faith, and you're, you're not sure about things, and you're a little, little uh, wobbly in your life, just keep coming. Stay with us in this study as we walk with Jesus, much as his disciples did. Remember early on, uh, they were pretty clueless, weren't they? They were even clueless toward the end. But nonetheless, they stayed with him, and uh, he guarded them and brought them home. And he'll do the same for us. Isn't that glorious? So we're going to talk this morning about the supremacy of Jesus, and uh, I I hope that you're as blessed as I was in terms of of reading these passages and and preparing and studying. Now, in the first half of, of of the chapter, we have this interview with Nicodemus. This is a famous passage when Jesus interviews and talks with a man, a leader of the Jews named Nicodemus, and that's the passage, and Everyone is pretty well apprised of it that uh, Jesus says, you must be born again, right? So we know about that passage. Now, it's after the interview with Nicodemus that Jesus moves out into the countryside of Judea. And he and his disciples begin baptizing. Though, strictly speaking, uh, it was Jesus didn't baptize himself. It was his disciples. If you look over into chapter 4, verse 2, John confirms that. He says, Jesus himself did not baptize, rather it was his disciples baptizing. And I think that's an interesting note because this is the only record we have in the Bible that Jesus had a baptizing ministry. And he is at this point conducting the same kind of baptism that John is conducting. What kind of baptism was John baptizing with? A baptism of repentance. Remember when John came on the scene and he started preaching, his message was very simply what? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That message is still good today, isn't it? Repent, turn, because the kingdom of God's at hand. Get into the kingdom of God. Embrace the kingdom of God. And you won't and can't unless you what? Turn, unless you repent. And as as a sign, as a demonstration of genuine repentance, John commanded the Jews who he was preaching to He commanded them to undergo this ritual washing, something that presumably was reserved simply for Gentile proselytes to Judaism. So if you were a Gentile and you wanted to associate with the Jews, God's people, for some reason, you wanted to come under the covenant blessings, 
you too had to undergo this, this ritual washing, which technically was called the baptism of repentance. So John has been baptizing people. Now, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the, the religious establishment are not being baptized. They're standing on the, on, the, on the banks of the river, Jordan River there and there. They're being very, very critical of John. Okay? And here comes Jesus. And Jesus is going to baptize because Jesus' message was just the same. When Jesus follows after John, he starts preaching. His message is the same. His message is what? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You can't engage the kingdom. You can't embrace God unless you're first willing to turn from your foolish, sinful, selfish, me-centered way and turn to him and learn what it means to trust him. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so Jesus also is uh, baptizing with the same kind of baptism that John is, the baptism of repentance. Now, it was his baptizing, it was Jesus' baptizing that set the stage for what's now going to happen. And this is a pivotal event. John and his disciples, though they were also baptizing, something begins to happen. People began to flock from John to Jesus. And as they do so, they, questions come up. The reason for this is interesting, I think. The apparent decline in John's popularity would give the, the religionists of the day. Notice verse 25 in this passage. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew. What did the argument, what was it all about? What does John say here? Yeah, over a matter of ceremonial washing. Now, what might they be debating? What's the issue about the ceremonial washing? I suspect the, the, the fact that people are going over to Jesus, here's an opportunity for the Jewish leaders who don't like John because John has called them out. This is an opportunity for them to attack him, to attack his credibility, indeed to attack the value of his baptism. Because all these people are going over to Jesus. Are you with me? You following me? So they ask his disciples. Now, in our text, it says, this argument arose between John's disciples and a Jew. There's other translations that say Jews. So there will be multiple people, presumably. But they did. They, they questioned him by asking not John directly, they asked his disciples a crucial question. And in their questioning, they stirred two basic questions of life. These religionists, these legalists, questioned very simply the cleansing, purifying value of John's baptism. They may have thought or looked for an opportunity to uh, attack John as maybe being a false prophet. But the sense behind it, if John's baptism were really cleansing the people's hearts and giving them a sense of cleanness, why were the people now flocking to Jesus? Now again, you have to understand, in the, in the context of Jewish law and Jewish practice, you sinned, you had to offer a sacrifice. And in some of those environments, you had to undergo ritual washings and ritual baths and so forth. And that symbolized a cleanness. You were, you were cleansed of that uncleanness. Are you with me? Most of you are familiar with this. So after you undergo this ritual washing, now you walk away and you should have a sense of being clean, being cleansed. I, 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 I can identify with that to somewhat because I grew up Roman Catholic. Some of you also grew up Roman Catholic. And I remember as a kid... Uh, going to confession every Saturday morning and confessing my sins to the priest. And then the priest giving me the proper penance and me praying the prayers of my penance and so forth. And I'll never forget walking out of the church. I used to go to American Martyrs. And I'll never forget walking out the front doors of the church and standing out on the platform as I, before I went down the stairs. And ah, I felt so clean. Of course, I wasn't. 
But you see, here's a sense that, that these ritual washings were to give people a sense of forgiveness, of cleansing, of relief from their guilt. Am I making sense so far? So if John's baptism were really meeting people's needs for this, they would continue then to come to John for cleansing. Wouldn't that make sense? You know, John's baptism is great. It's, it's meeting all of our needs. But instead, they're deserting him, and they're flocking to Jesus. This whole issue cut John's disciples to the core. Just really crashed them. And so they asked John why now everybody was turning to Jesus instead of remaining with him. What's the problem here? The whole question over this matter of ceremonial washing strikes at the two basic questions of life. And here's where the application comes home to us. The first question is that very question of washing and cleansing. And by that, I mean, can the human heart really be cleansed? Do people know that they are guilty? What do you think? And if you can think back to, to when you, before you became a Christian, was there a sense in your life at all that something's wrong? I'm guilty. Did you want to face that? No, no. For, for the most part, we didn't want to face it. We ran from it. We did as much as we could to avoid, to ignore, not to have to engage it, right? Does anybody like to admit they're wrong? Nobody, huh? We just did when we came to the community table. I love it. I love to admit I'm wrong. Bah! <laughs> so this, this whole idea, can the human heart really be cleansed? Can the need of people for cleansing really be met? That's a huge issue in people's lives, although people don't want to talk about it necessarily. The second question is the question of supremacy of a person's master in life. Who am I to follow? Do I just live my life on my own terms? Or do I have somebody I follow? Someone who leads me? Someone who guides me? Who am I to follow? Do I follow some man? Do I follow some ideology? Who do I follow? Now, attendant to those two great questions of life, there are two tragic facts that we have to address. The first is this. As I said a moment ago, every single person seeks the cleansing of his or her heart from something. Everybody. Everybody. We seek a release. We seek a release from sensing wrong and or failure. How many people love to live with regrets? It's your favorite thing to live with regrets. Unfortunately, that's a dilemma that we have to deal with, isn't it? We always think, if only, oh, if only, if I was just as smart then as I am now. Well, you may be no smarter now, but you just have 20-20 hindsight. We have a, a there, there's something in us that craves a, a dissolving of guilt. I've said this before, I believe this all in my heart. I don't care how calm you are on the exterior uh, unless you've come to Christ and you understand and you have been forgiven and you've received his grace. Unless that's happened, there is under the surface of your calm exterior this vague sense of dis-ease. You just don't know for sure. You are guilty. There's something wrong. I can't quite put my finger on it. But few people, in truth, few people seek that cleansing in Christ. Jesus himself in Matthew's gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, remember he talks about the, the broad way and the narrow way and, 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 and many are on the broad way. Few are on the narrow way. Few who find that way. And the Broadway is the way to what? Destruction. 
And people are just on that way. They seem to seek cleansing everywhere. They seem to seek relief everywhere except in Christ. And the worst, the most tragic, are the people who seek relief in religious, in being religious, in religious self-justification. By that I mean, well, I go to church. That ain't going to help you if you just go into church to try to justify yourself in front of your own eyes and in the eyes of other people, maybe even the eyes of God. Well, I go to church or I, I give some money or I try to do some good deeds. Every time the pastor says we need help, I, I jump up and help. Doesn't that count for something? No, it doesn't cleanse you. Not at all. Maybe you are someone who uh, tries to escape these things and find some relief in shopping. Yes, shopping. We all know the, the caricature of the, the person who just shops and shops and shops and shops. There's something out of order there. Or substance abuse. Burying themselves. Trying to find some relief. Running, running, hiding. There's no relief there. The relief and the freedom only comes in Jesus Christ. Only comes in Jesus Christ. I talked with a lady last night after the service and her family, she and her family are facing a terrible, terrible situation. And as she was sharing her testimony with me, there were three or four events that she pointed out that were high points in her life with Jesus where she, she said, I just prayed and I prayed and I prayed and, and God did this and God did this. And I said to her, there's the answer. She's coming to me for an answer. I said, I don't have the answer for you except you've already got your own answer. Look at what your testimony said. You prayed, you turned to him, you called out to him, you recognized that only he could help you. You were desperate and he was faithful, and he was faithful. He'll be faithful in this situation too. He'll give you a way. He'll give you a solution. He is your very present help in trouble. Oh, man. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The second fact is every person, every person follows somebody. Uh, I had Alan sing that, that old Bob Dylan song. You know, this is when Bob Dylan was flirting with Christianity years ago. And I was a relatively new Christian, and that album, Slow Train Coming, came out. I listened to it and went, wow, Bob Dylan is a Christian. <laughs> it didn't last very long, tragically. But I thought that song was great. you got to serve somebody. Does that not say it? you got to serve somebody. You, you, you have no choice. Every person must follow somebody. Every person must give his or her allegiance to somebody or something. Some person, some ideology. Now, I confess that I are a conservative. I are a registered Republican. But I follow Jesus. My value system falls within that, in that framework, but I follow Jesus. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, he says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone or something to obey, you obey as slaves. You're slaves to the one that you obey. Whatever you give your life to, whatever person you decide to follow, and periodically, as I talk to people in my life and out there in the world, and sometimes that question comes up. You know, what do you believe? You know, where, where are you on the spectrum of things? And who do you follow? And who's your mentor? And I say, I always say, you know what? Jesus. Jesus Christ. The most, was it George Bush said that the, the, the most respected, admired person in his life was Jesus Christ. That's a pretty gutsy thing to say especially if you're the President of the United States. But it's comforting, isn't it? The whole teaching of the Bible, 
Old Testament and New Testament. You read the whole Testament, the whole Bible. You always want to be looking for Jesus. And a lot of, in most of the ways in the Old Testament, he's obscured. You got to dig, you got to think, you got to watch, you got to find him. You got to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you. But the Old Testament, New Testament, the whole teaching is that only Jesus Christ can cleanse. Only Jesus Christ can purify. Only Jesus Christ has the power to give us renewal in our life, to make us new people, to change us. Years ago, a book came out, the title was, I'm Okay, You're Okay. How many remember that book? <laughs> An attempt to just justify who we are and I don't have to worry about changing. No, I'm okay. Shut up. <laughs> As I read that book, I thought, God, and I didn't even know. I didn't know any of this stuff. But something was unsettling. There was a tension there that I couldn't resolve. I'm, I knew I was not okay. That's why I'm reading the book. Only Jesus can cleanse and purify a person's heart. Only Jesus can give true cleansing from sin and guilt. That is our problem. You can't get anyplace else. Only Jesus. He and he alone can supremely deliver us from what ails us. Amen? Now John... In the, in the succeeding verses now, is John is going to give a, a, a response. He's going to answer those two questions. He's going to show that Jesus, and only Jesus, is supreme, the one person who can, and, and he gives us six different arenas where Jesus does provide this deliverance. First, the first question, we look at verses 27 and 28 with me. Here's his first answer. Now here's, John's disciples are, are saying, you know, why are they going over to Jesus? And John says, in verse 27, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. So the point is, very simply this, that God is the one who appoints people. God is the one who puts people in this place and that place. God is the one who's given us our present president, isn't he? God is the one who put uh, despots in place. But they're responsible for the trust that he gives them. And he, they fit into his plan and design. Now you and I, our understanding of these things begins to break down. We don't really comprehend it. We think everything should fit in a nice, neat package. At some point, we have to suspend judgment and say, you know, God, I don't really understand all this, but I trust you and I know you understand it. You've got a plan and purpose. And the same thing goes to our individual lives, doesn't it? There's crazy things happen. People come into our life. Where did this come from? Is this just coincidence? Or might there be design and purpose behind it? Yeah, I think it's the latter. So then he says, verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The point being, John is saying, Jesus alone was God's appointed Messiah. There is no other. Jesus alone is God's appointed Messiah. Jesus alone was Messiah, God's appointed one. That's where it all starts. God gave Jesus the appointment, if you will, to be the Messiah, to be the Savior. He didn't appoint John to be the Messiah. He didn't appoint G uh, John to be the Christ. John was appointed to be the what? The forerunner. That was his role. And John himself was clear about this. He was not the Christ. Jesus was. He even said it. He says, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. So the first place we go, first answer that John gives us about the supremacy of Christ is he is God's appointed Messiah. And Jesus himself later on, in, in, as we read through the Gospels, Jesus will acknowledge us. He will identify himself as such. Uh, if you go back to Matthew chapter 16, 
And Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am, right? Some say, well, you're Elijah, you're the prophet, you're so-and-so, and, and, and people that do that today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, he's a good man, he's a prophet, you know, so forth and so forth. And then Peter pipes up. What does Peter say? You're the Christ. You're the Christ. You're God's appointed Messiah. And Jesus responds to him, and Jesus says to him, what? Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You, you would never figure this out on your own. But how was it revealed? Your Father in heaven has revealed this to you. This is a supernatural revelation. But the point is that Jesus acknowledges, yeah, I am the Messiah. Later on at his trial, when the high priest is, 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 is interrogating Jesus, he asks him, are you the Messiah? And Jesus plainly says, it is as you say. Whoa, you would think the high priest then would go, man, we are in trouble. But they're blinded, aren't they? And then, of course, Next time, we're going to look into John chapter 4, the woman at the well, and the interview that Jesus has with her. And she says, well, we know that when Messiah comes, and so forth and so forth, and Jesus is listening to her, and he smiles, and he says, I am he. Wow, what a moment. What a moment. To whom should we look? To whom should we look really for relief, for forgiveness, for cleansing, for salvation? To whom shall we proclaim our allegiance? To whom? I submit to you, there is no one else, no one else except Jesus, the Christ, our Lord and Savior. Jesus. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, I promise you he will save you. You just turn to him. Just turn to him. Secondly, John says this. Verses 29 and 30. Read these with me. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become what? Less. So here John is simply saying that Jesus alone was the bridegroom. Jesus alone was the bridegroom. The friend is important. But he is not the bridegroom. The bridegroom is the focus of the friend's attention. The bridegroom's voice is the voice to be heard. His voice is the important voice. His will is the will to be done. Serving him and doing what he says, this is what is really important. You see, he is the bride. You have to understand the customs, Jewish customs in the ancient Near East. The bridegroom, man, he was the end all. Everything revolved around the bridegroom. Everything. What he said, what he wanted. Everybody attended to the bridegroom. The bridegroom is the cause for joy. He's the cause for joy. We reverse it today. The bride's the cause for joy in our culture. Not so in the ancient Near East. The bridegroom was the cause for joy. It's not the friend who brings joy to the bride. It's not the friend who brings joy to the guests. It's not the friend who brings joy to the community. It's the bridegroom. Everyone's joy is found in seeing the bridegroom's will be done and in seeing him pleased. Everyone defers to the bridegroom. That's why John says, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend. He must increase, I must decrease. And that's our testimony, isn't it? <laughs> so much of the time, we make it about us, don't we? <laughs> when am I going to get mine? Shut up. 
You've lost perspective. It's about the bridegroom. Your joy. How many want to have joy in their life? You ever tried to manufacture joy? You ever say, all right, I'm going to be joyful today. (laughs) Joy, come on, joy. I submit to you, there is no joy. There will never be joy in your life unless Jesus is the source of your joy. How many know what it means to, to, to rejoice in another person? I mean, we do this all the time. Most of the time, you know, your grandma, you rejoice, rejoice in like, grandbaby. And there's a joy that emanates. It's spontaneous. It just comes, right? So you already understand what it means to rejoice in a person, to get your joy. Our joy comes in our relationship with him because our focus is on him. Am I making sense here? He alone The bridegroom is the only object of loyalty. The servant draws back. The servant shrinks from attention, becomes less and less in the eyes of all. He does nothing for himself, but does all for whom? The bridegroom. For his honor and his greatness. Our lives, we live our lives for his glory. His glory. Jesus simply, because the dilemma always comes, but yeah, but what about me? What about me? That's your problem. It's always about you. Jesus said, if you would put me first, my kingdom, my righteousness, get your priorities right, I'll take care of everything else. It'll just all fall into place. Duh. Do we need to be reminded of this stuff? That's why I'm here. He must become greater. I must become less. Let that be your prayer. Let that be your, if I dare use this word, mantra. Lord, you become greater. I become less. You become greater. I become less. John answers, it gives us a third perspective, a third answer to these questions that we've looked at. And this is found in verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. What John is telling us, if we're to understand the supremacy of Christ rightly in the context of our, of our two questions about cleansing and, and lordship, Jesus alone was from above. That is from heaven. And because he's from above, he is also above all. Lest we lose sight of that reality. He is above all. His origin was from above. He was not of the earth. He was not earthly in the sense that you and I are. Men, we are earthly. We are of the earth. But Jesus was not. He was from heaven. He was literally out of God himself. And therefore, he was and is, by definition, uh, superior, preeminent, supreme. He is. Jesus came out of the heavenly dimension of living. And he entered into the earthly dimension of living. He came out of this incorruptible, imperishable world, if you will, into this corrupt and perishable world. He left heaven and all of its glory, all the power, all the wonder, all the beauty, and came here. Now you and I appreciate a beautiful sunset, don't we? We appreciate the beauty of this world. You go camping or hiking and you go up to Yosemite and such, you say, wow, takes your breath away. You stand at the precipice of the Grand Canyon, you go, wow. You stand at the ocean's edge, you see the waves and the vastness of the ocean, you go, wow. We haven't seen heaven. We haven't seen heaven. All this pales in comparison to where he came from. He came from there to here. A man, John says a man can can only speak of the earth. He can only speak of earthly things. He comes only out of the earth. Therefore, he only knows earthly things. 
Now, when he speaks of heavenly things, he's only able to share his ideas or his speculations. Have you noticed that? All sorts of people speculating about the afterlife. What goes on? There's all sorts of religions and all sorts of speculations. Why? Because these are earthly people. Why can they only express their ideas and their speculations? Because they're of the earth. They didn't come from there. <laughs> they don't really know what it's like. You and I look through a glass dimly, don't we? One day we'll see clearly. One day our minds are just going to be blown beyond understanding. Can you hardly wait? Yeah, the earthly guy is, is, didn't come from heaven. The only conceivable way for a man to know anything about heaven, really, is if someone from heaven comes and tells him about it. Duh. Who might that be? Jesus. Jesus. Now, in verses 32 through 34, John tells us that Jesus alone was God's spokesman. Again, let me read to you. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. To him, God gives the spirit without limit. Jesus was from where? He's from above. All right, we, we already established it. He's from above. He's out of the dimension of heaven. And therefore, he has seen and heard. He knows the truth of heaven. He is the only one that can share heaven with us. But most people reject his testimony. Can you imagine? Just ask yourself, how long did you reject Jesus' testimony? Just reflect on it. How long did I fight this off? How long did I try to justify myself? But I'm a good person. But I'm a good person. But I'm a good person. I'm a religious person. I'm re Don't bug me. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Why do people reject his testimony? Well, first of all, John tells us, in uh, the, the earlier part of John chapter 3, verse 19, he says that men love what? The darkness. the darkness. How many of you really want to come out into the full light? How many really would stand up this morning and testify to the deepest, darkest, sinful secrets of your heart in front of the congregation? Not me. <laughs> Why? Because we have this tension in our life. We want to be liked. Right? I'm not going to tell you certain stuff. Because if I tell you, you're not going to like me. You're going to, ugh. <laughs> I can't handle that. We love the darkness. We find a certain measure of refuge in the darkness. Do we not? This is what we live with. This is what we battle against. This is why we find ourselves fighting against God. He says, come on. Come on into the light. <laughs> How many of it's your favorite thing to be accountable? Your favorite thing to be accountable. You've got to confess your sins. You go to that women's group. You go to that men's group. You say, okay, here I am. Here's what I did this week. <laughs> the other guys are going, well, I would never do that. Ha! You probably do the same things. <laughs> right, Vince? <laughs> now, men love the darkness. That's why they reject his testimony. Secondly, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are what? Spiritually discerned. You just don't have the spirit. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus. He says, you've got to be born again. I can explain all these things to you. I can give you examples, but Nick, you're not going to get it. You've got to be born again. You've got to have the spiritual equipment to see the kingdom. It's right there in front of you. But you won't see it unless you're what? First born again. Thirdly, 
people reject Jesus' testimony because, again, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Before you became a Christian, you're dead. Can a dead person see something? No. Does a dead person get anything? No, they're just dead. That's our condition. That's how bad we were. And on top of that, he says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, this is, this is like, what more can happen to us? We've been blinded by Satan. No wonder people don't accept his testimony. But the person who does accept Jesus' testimony about God and his truth. And how does any person accept God's testimony about, or Jesus' testimony about God and his truth? How does anybody ever accept that testimony? How does that happen? It's really simple. By faith. You get out there, you risk, you say, is this true? Are you sure this is true? Yes. It's true. Trust me. Come along. Okay. Okay. I'll come with you. How many have ever led somebody to Christ? Oh, more of you should try it. <laughs> you led somebody to Christ. Have you ever found that that person may be a little tentative? A little uncertain? You know, they want some assurances. And you say to them, what? Just trust me. Come on. Come to church with me. Come to growth group with me. Come to mini church with me. Just come on. We're going to take an ACMI class together. Just come on. You just got to trust me. And if you found that, that that person, as you lead them, as you disciple them, that's how you make a disciple. He says, come with me. We're going to work with children. We are. Yeah, just come on. You find what? That they believe. They believe. More and more. But it starts with a step of faith. Yes, you said, but they were, they're blind. They're dead. Yes, but somehow God makes us alive. God opens the door. God gives us a responsibility and an opportunity to take that step of faith. But even then, God even gives us the faith. Wow. I believe. What a testimony, huh? But that person who believes receives forgiveness and cleansing and eternal life because they believe in Jesus. They may not understand all the theology. They may not understand all the dynamics. But how many times have you heard this? I just felt clean. I just felt lighter. Something changed in my life. I'm different well, that's why you got to come with me to systematic theology to understand what happened. That's why you got to read your Bible. A miracle happened in you. You were cleansed and you received eternal life. And you have a hope in you now. And you find that this person, by their life and their testimony, they actually certify. That's the word he uses. They certify. By how they live their life. By the language they, they certify that God is true when he speaks through his son, Jesus. It's true. It's true. And the longer you're a Christian, the longer you go, wow, this is really true. This is really true. This is really true. This really is true. God said of Jesus, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Why? Because he is the way and he is the truth and he is the life. He's got it. It's all about Jesus. And to reject Jesus is to call God a liar, and not only that, to perish eternally. Let me read to you real quickly from 1 John chapter 5. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. How many would like to say, God, you're lying to me? Because he has not received the testimony God has given him about his Son. And this is the testimony. 
God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He's given us eternal life. Jesus, it's all about him. Have you certified in your life? Have you certified the truth of God in the person of Jesus Christ? Have you settled the issue? Have you signed off on Jesus? Have you signed off on the truth of God? The fifth answer is found in verse 34. John writes, For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. To him God gives the Spirit without, what? Limit. Jesus alone, John is saying, has the full measure of God's Spirit. Now, all the prophets of the Old Testament, they spoke for God. Now, were they, were they led and empowered and inspired by the Holy Spirit? Yeah, absolutely. The Bible tells us that. John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we're told, himself was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was where? Still where? In his mother's womb. And yet I submit to you, the Spirit's ability to empower them was limited now, why was it that it's possible to limit this, the Holy Spirit's power in all these prophets? What limited the Holy Spirit's power? What limits the Holy Spirit's power in you? Our, our, our fallen nature, our, our weak, human, fallen nature. We have a fallen nature, right? But Just by very definition, there's lots of things we can't do. Lots of things we don't do perfectly. But Jesus, whom God had sent, speaks the words of God perfectly. Perfectly. Because God gave the Holy Spirit to him without limits. In other words, there were no limits to the Spirit's power working through him. Listen to Luke, uh, writes in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around doing good and healing most who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Did I misread that? Healed what? All. Why? How, how could he heal all? Everyone that was brought to Jesus, Jesus what? Healed them. Delivered them. Because why? There's no limit to his power have you ever been frustrated? You pray for somebody and nothing changes? You find your prayers are weak? Why? Is it because you're such a bad person? No, you're, you're just, there's a limitation to, the, to the, the, the access to the Spirit's power in your life. We just don't do things perfectly like Jesus could do them. It's just a reality. Does it mean we don't pray? No, we continue to pray. We continue to seek Him. We continue to ask. That's what He said. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And then there's John's sixth answer, the final answer. We find this in verses 35 and 36. As to the supremacy of Jesus in his ability to cleanse and in his lordship. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath, what? Remains on him. Jesus alone determines man's destiny. Nobody else. Your destiny, my destiny, is in his hands. He determines it. I submit to you there is no more tender statement than this. Think with me. No more tender statement than this. The Father loves the Son. Right, Greg? The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son beyond anything that could ever be understood. How much does the Father love the Son? So much that He has given all things into the hands of the Son. I give it all to you, the Father says. Everything is laid before Him. All power, all authority, 
all rule, all reign, all supremacy, all dominion, all honor, all glory, all praise, all worship, all service. There is nothing in all of creation, in heaven, in earth, above the earth, below the earth, nothing that has not been given to him. Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes this, all things are created by him and for him. He is absolutely, ultimately supreme. You say, why, why then? What could be some reasons why the Father loves the Son so much? Now, I can't be definitive, but I want to give you four suggestions of why I think the Father loves the Son so much. First, Jesus is God's only unique, one-of-a-kind Son. He's the only one. He is, Jesus is one in essence with the very nature of God himself. That's why he loves him so much. Secondly, he is the, own, the one and only son who willingly took on a human nature coming into this world to save men and thereby fulfilling the will of the Father perfectly. Wow. You do my will. I delight to do your will, he says. Thirdly, Jesus, the one and only Son, gave himself as an offering and as a sacrifice for sin to God. It's not that he just saved us. But his life was a sacrifice to God. Full payment is made. Nothing owed. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2. Paul says it very succinctly. He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When justice is done, when there's been a heinous crime and justice is really served, is there not satisfaction now? When a heinous criminal gets off on a technicality, is that a joyful thing? Is that a satisfying thing? No. We're outraged. And here he's a fragrant offering. Why? Because justice has been served. And fourthly, Jesus willingly learned perfect obedience by the things he, what? Suffered. What does that mean? He learned perfect obedience? Yes. He learned the full meaning. He learned the full meaning of the cost of obedience from the things which he suffered. Can anybody relate to that? He learned the full meaning of the cost. Is obedience costly? Absolutely. And generally it's attended by what? Suffering, trials, dying to myself, right? We learn this perfect obedience. He was given no exemption from the hardship. He was given no exemption from the pain. In fact, let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 5 real quickly. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. Are our prayers and petitions marked by loud cries and tears? To the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent, what, what? Submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. There's, a, there's an extension of that to us. As we, as we mature and as we grow and as we're made perfect, we become a source, kind of, of salvation to others, don't we? Source of comfort and encouragement and strength. Paul says in Corinthians, he said, you know, we've suffered and, and we've learned to rely on the Lord and, and we can go comfort others with the comfort that we've received. It's the same principle. But it's a cost. Stuff happens in our life. And then in verse 36. 
John says the person who believes in the Son has eternal life. Gosh, if we could just describe that. Eternal life. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of that which God has prepared for those who love him. Eternal life in all it encompasses. God receives and God honors anyone who receives and honors his son who he loves so much. I think that's true of us. You have a, you have a child, and you have a son, you have a daughter, someone who honors your son and daughter who you love so much. You honor that person. You receive that person, don't you? Surely. It doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't matter what the person has done. If that person honors Jesus, if that person believes in God's only Son, God grants to him eternal life. Cleansing, forgiveness, eternal life. The person who does not believe the Son, however, faces two things. He will not see life and the wrath of God remains on him. Ooh. It's not, it's not that God will one day condemn sinners for their disobedient belief. No, no, no. What, what, what John is telling us here is they are already in a state of condemnation from which only saving faith in Jesus can deliver them. We are, Paul says, by nature objects of wrath. God's wrath remains on us. When you realize that, you go, oh my gosh, I need to be saved. I need to come out from underneath this. I do not want to spend eternity in this place. The ultimate consequence of refusing to believe will be to experience God's wrath for eternity in a place called the lake of fire. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Ooh. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So apparently... There are books that record our every word, our every deed, our every thought, our every action. Now, we typically will try to justify ourselves by those. That's why the books are open. Well, let's see if you meet the standard. Did anybody meet the standard by their works? No. And we're going to be judged by those things. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The Death and Hades gave us the dead that were in them. Each person was judged according to what he had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. How many want their name written in the book of life? There's some hands that are not going up. I'm sorry for you. I am sorry for you. How does one get their name written in the book of life? Look to Jesus. Rehearse this with me. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. Amen. Jesus, he is supreme. He's our savior, our healer, our deliverer. He is our soon coming king. Hallelujah. Amen, church? Amen. Father, thank you. We love you this morning. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your great salvation. Thank you for every good gift that comes to us from your gracious hand. Thank you for the difficulties and the trials. Thank you, Father, that these are also designed, Lord, that we be perfected in our obedience, that we too understand that the, the cost of obedience will include difficulty and suffering. But you are perfecting us. Thank you that you work all things together for our good. Lord, we love you this morning and we're grateful to be called according to your purpose. Thank you, Lord. Amen, church? Amen. Amen.
If you don't know Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to go back to the prayer room or come to see one of the elders. They'll be down in front and tell them, I want to know Jesus. I don't want to go to hell. Turn to your neighbor, pronounce a blessing on your neighbor if you would, and if it's appropriate, only if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss. Let's stand together and sing God's praises one more time before we dismiss.